Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, we are joined by Christopher Burns, Chief Digital Development Officer for USAID. Prior to USAID, Chris spent nearly 10 years with the Peace Corps. We discuss USAID's digital strategy and how digital technology can be harnessed for international development. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Chris, great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Naveen. It's a, it's a great moment for us, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. As I think you might know, we launched the USAID Digital Strategy just about two years ago at CSIS, so it seems pretty apropos for us to be back here celebrating the last two years, and our team has been working diligently to highlight some of the the key accomplishments. And so this podcast seems like a, a great way to wrap up what has been a couple of weeks of celebrating uh, that strategy. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think you were with my friend Dan Rundy at the time and would love to hear about the progress in the last couple of years. And maybe I'll just tee it up by asking, you know, first for our audience, how does digital technology in general come into play in USAID's broader objective of reducing poverty and promoting democracy? Right. Well, certainly it's evolved over time. I think digital technology used to be seen as a standalone sector, often considered after project design. And then it morphed into something that was seen as more cross-cutting across all sectors and geographies because it just touches upon everything we do. But I think now in today's digital age, the way I like to look at it, it is almost like an overlay on traditional international development programming that really influences everything we do across all sectors. And I I would say that right now we can't be successful and development can't move forward without an intentional holistic focus on digital development and what it does in today's world. Uh, Certainly, I think we're well attuned to what digital infrastructure is doing to connect citizens, to help governments engage with individuals, for businesses to transact, for communities really to come online and be empowered. And that's fostering incredible economic growth. It's improving development outcomes. And frankly, it's lifting millions out of poverty. But as our USAID administrator, Samantha Power, noted in her remarks in December at the Summit for Democracy, the widespread adoption of digital technologies enabled by the growth of, of this digital infrastructure over the past couple decades has in part fueled a democratic recession. And, you know, we have governments that now have the ability to surveil, to censor and to repress people as never before. So there's kind of like this yin and yang wielded responsibly. The same technologies that are used to surveil and repress are also beacons of democratic change and participation. And our responsibility, both USAID and I think by extension, the broader development community, is to ensure that digital ecosystems are shaped and maintained and used in a way that reflects our shared values. So Chris, the the accessibility of the internet and digital technology in the developing world is extremely, I suppose, underwhelming compared to the rest of us who are fortunate to live in 
first world countries. What are you guys doing to bridge this gap to create a more equitable outcome? Yeah, I sense that's something that you understand very well, Naveen, in, in your own work uh, over the years. And, and certainly it's true that it's not on par with the more developed parts of the world, especially when it comes to internet penetration and the affordable use of data. And I would say to a certain extent, the COVID-19 pandemic has surfaced this magnitude of digital divides and in some cases has even exacerbated those divides as people raced online in order to deal with their lives and as the public and private sectors accelerated their digital transformation in order to provide services to those folks. But I would also say it's hard to generalize uh, across all countries and all digital technologies. Certainly, there is now you know pretty ubiquitous 3G penetration in over 90% of the inhabited world. And certainly when we look at digital financial services, particularly the rise of mobile money, I would note that the developing world is probably further ahead than, say, the Western world when it comes to the use of mobile money to, to transact or to send remittances or just, you know, to, to help people uh, do financial things online. But you're right. There are certainly some gaps. And I think the World Bank has even noted that it would take over $100 billion to reach universal access to broadband connectivity by 2030, which is right around the corner. And that's just for Africa alone. And noting that the, the magnitude of those investments encapsulates not just digital infrastructure, right? but also the broader information and communication technology skills that are required for people to fully embrace today's digital age. Certainly it uh, involves you know, content, making sure that it's locally relevant to people's lives, and then the policies and regulatory frameworks that underpin that infrastructure, uh, as well as kind of the ongoing operations and maintenance. So it's all kind of packaged together and what those investments might look like. And, you know, we're doing quite a bit in that regard, but it's not just about financing the gaps. It's also about making sure that we're not actually blind to the actual health of the digital ecosystem that we're helping to create and foster. Our digital inclusion team, for example, is doing a lot to expand mobile and Internet access across countries where we work. Uh, we work with a broad range of public and private sector partners to expand that access, to expand adoption and the use of mobile services, particularly for underserved and marginalized groups, including the poor, uh, women, youth, ethnic and religious minorities and people with disabilities, folks who are really coming online for the first time that we want to make sure that when they are embracing these technologies, they can do it in a way that is safe and advances their socioeconomic livelihoods. You know, some of the partners we're working with include our own colleagues over at the State Department, also with Commerce and, and other parts of the U.S. government. We have a program called the Digital Connectivity and Cybersecurity Partnership that we co-chair with the State Department. And that's really focused on supporting open, interoperable, reliable, and secure digital infrastructure that promotes inclusive growth, fosters resilient and democratic societies, and empowers all including the most vulnerable. And I would just note within that project, there's a lot of different components to it, but one thing that we're pretty excited about is working on open radio access networks or open RAN, right? So these are a way of driving open standards for key elements of communication networks architecture, allowing mobile network operators to choose the best products and solutions from a variety of vendors. In doing so, this really fosters supply chain diversity, something that of course, we're all constrained by 
these days uh, and helps those network operators avoid vendor lock-in, which uh, also leads to advanced security and lower costs, particularly as a lot of the countries that we are working with move towards 5G. We've started a few open RAN projects in Peru, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and also in Southeast Asia, each of which are targeted a specific gap of ORAN deployment. Rural de deployment in Peru, for example, energy and access in the DRC, and workforce skills development in Asia. And then I'll just note, finally, we have a new program called Digital Invest, which our administrator just announced. On April 27th, she announced a new blended finance program that seeks to mobilize private capital for digital finance and internet service providers that are serving traditionally excluded consumer populations. We're excited to see how this program takes place. And I suspect, Naveen, that might be something of interest to you in your own daily work. Well, congrats on, on that new launch. It's certainly something that seems to be needed. Actually, before we go further, just for our audience sake, for those who are less familiar with USAID in general, what regions of the world do you guys work in? We're global in nature. Uh, I think we have a presence in over 80 countries and we have programs in over 100 countries. For our technology division within the Innovation Technology and Research Hub, we are geography agnostic. We don't really prioritize any ge geography and we tend to work in all of them. But, you know, as is the nature of international development, trends and demand and interest shifts over time. And we try to be as, as malleable to those shifts. For example, if there is an urgent need in Ukraine or in the Northern Triangle in Central America, we'll shift and respond to requests from missions or regional bureaus here in D.C. as they try to figure out what that means for uh, the digital economies there. And it's not just what we're doing in the immediate term. We also align our investments and our efforts around what will build in sustainability for digital ecosystems in the longer run. And for example, if you look at West Africa and, and the post-Ebola era, we came in and acknowledged that as the Ebola pandemic was still unfolding, that it was really hard for the Ministry of Health, for example, to communicate with frontline health workers because they just didn't have the platforms in place to do so, nor did they have the strength of the digital infrastructure to support those platforms. We also found that those health workers and teachers, for example, weren't able to get paid or get access to materials they need because they, they didn't have the capacity to leave their communities. So we did a couple things there to try to enhance that digital infrastructure over time. For example, we facilitated the use of mobile money to pay frontline health workers and to pay teachers, which resulted in significant savings in time and not having to travel long distances over unsafe roads. We also brought in and redeployed a two-way mobile communications platform that we rebranded called mHero uh, as a way for the ministry to connect with frontline health workers. That is still being used today. I think they've used it for something like well over 80 health campaigns, including for COVID-19. And then we partner with Google and their local affiliate C-squared to build a metro fiber ring around Monrovia and then some backbone out in the more rural areas and hooked up a bunch of the line ministries and the ISPs there to really capitalize on fiber. And so that was then, but if you could you know, play that forward, those investments are still panning out in today's 
global pandemic and presumably will continue to do so. So we do like to make sure that we're both responding in the moment, but also fostering stronger digital ecosystems and digital technology for countries moving forward. Certainly seems like you have your work cut out for you. Just taking it up one level um, from the individual countries or different regions, in general, women and girls in developing countries are less likely to have access to digital technologies than males. How are you guys addressing this issue specifically as you work on things like digital inclusion? Yeah, it's very true. And I would say that this is a key focus of ours. I would even posit that it's really where we got our first bearings uh, working on digital development in the age of mobile phones. Back in 2010, GSMA had identified a significant mobile phone gender gap in terms of ownership of mobile phones in the developing world. And, and, and they brought that gap to us and said, hey, do you want to help to close it? So I think that's where we really fostered USAID's first a global development alliance on closing that mobile phone gender gap. And in a lot of cases, we were successful, but mobile phone ownership then morphed into mobile phone use and then internet use. And I think over the years, we've actually seen in some cases that that the usage gap has even increased. Again, you can't generalize for every country, but in some countries, there's over a 50% gap between women's use of mobile technologies and, and, and online technologies and, and that of men. So advancing women's digital connectivity is actually a key component of uh, ensuring women's economic empowerment and a key component of our strategy to do so. AID is committed to advancing women's social and economic empowerment by closing this gender digital divide. And we do so through a couple of initiatives. One is the Women Connect Challenge, which is a global call for solutions to improve women's participation in everyday life by meaningfully changing the ways women access and use technology. To date, we've had 16 Women Connect Challenge grantees working to address barriers limiting women's access to technology and uh, to connect about 6 million women in 16 countries. One example of that is a group called AFCHICS. They are creating entrepreneurial opportunities for rural women in Senegal, Morocco, Kenya, and Namibia to run local internet service providers and to work as network engineers for those providers. Really cool stuff. And, and this initiative has done a couple things. It's contributed to improving the connectivity and capacity of communities themselves to engage online and to maintain their own telecom infrastructure. But it's also been a way to build the entrepreneurial capacity of women to establish their own companies and to provide these important services to their communities. And in a way, they've become local celebrities and role models uh, by extension of this. There's a couple other partnerships we've done to close the gender digital divide. One is a partnership we have with Microsoft called Microsoft Airband. This is a public-private partnership that seeks to bring internet access to more women around the world, expanding their economic opportunities. And, and in doing so, we are investing in locally owned and operated internet and, and telecom companies serving rural areas, specifically in Colombia, in Ghana, Guatemala, India, and Kenya. And then we have a partnership with MasterCard called StartPath that is providing technical leadership on a couple multi-million dollar programs to empower women and strengthen the digital ecosystem in both Colombia and in India. 
in Colombia, the program is called Starpath Empower, and it's providing women tech entrepreneurs with access to leadership development and network building support, as well as mentorship and technical assistance to create more of a level playing field and really unleash the next generation of female leaders in Colombia. And then in India, the project is called Project Karana, which is uh, aiming to increase revenue streams and expand financial inclusion and digital payment adoption for women-owned and operated Karana shops, sort of like the you know small neighborhood corner kiosks around India. And by joining forces, MasterCard and USAID are working to strengthen that broader entrepreneurial ecosystem and, and support the aspirations of women entrepreneurs themselves. I was just taking some notes there. You mentioned you at that one program, the Global Connect Challenge, that connected over 6 million women. Is that correct? That's correct. That's worth highlighting. That's an amazing accomplishment. I just wanted to switch gears here for a second and let our audience know sort of your personal commitment to the developing world. Because before you joined USAID, you spent, I believe it was 10 years in the Peace Corps. Is that correct? As a program and training officer. Yeah, 10 years total in the Peace Corps in a variety of capacities as a volunteer at headquarters here in D.C. and then out in the field as staff. And where were you stationed during that time? And give us a sense of some of your experiences while you were out in the field. Sure. So I was in the field in Niger for three and a half years, and I was leading their natural resource management and agricultural programs in the beginning and then shifted over to a role of leading all the programs and all of the the training of what were 120 volunteers across the country at that time. Uh, This was from 2006 to 2009, not to really date myself. (laughs) Yeah, there seems to be a lot of security issues in that area. Now, has it gotten more dangerous with the terrorist presence since you have left that area? Unfortunately, it it has. And, you know, when we were there a decade ago, there was essentially free movement for many parts of the country. It's much more constrained now. And Niger and the broader Sahelian region have a history of different challenges, and they go beyond sort of the physical security ones of today. But, you know, one that routinely crops up and was true when I was there, particularly in 2008, but also again, this year specifically, is around food security or food insecurity, something that Niger really grapples with over time, which is why the Peace Corps program when it was there was really focused on uh, strengthening the capacity of communities to build resilient farming practices for themselves, to not have to rely as much on the import of food, which in 2008 was really constrained in prices, you know, were, were several hundredfold higher than normal because the challenge was actually region wide. And so even for folks who could buy rice, buy grain, some of the staples, the prices they were paying, you know, were a significant part of their entire monthly household income. And we're seeing that again today. Unfortunately, it's kind of a cyclical thing in the area. I'm curious what challenges you face with regards to personal danger for your team or just the fact that there isn't a lot of infrastructure in some of these places? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think whenever there's a, a new discipline brought to the field of international development, there's a, there's a host of challenges that are going to crop up. And it, part of it depends on who you're engaging and, and where you're engaging. Certainly, as you noted, if it's at a field level or at, or at a country level, and you're talking about digital technology, which, of course, you know, the pace of change is so dramatic when it comes to technology these days that we are always having to keep our eyes on, you know, what's behind us, what's in front of us and what's ahead of us. And it's just a fast moving industry. And, you know, when you bring something new and you could argue that international development has now been in play for 80 years, sort of, you know, back to Bretton Woods post-World War II, that you've got people who are very steeped in this discipline, right? And who have decades of uh, technical expertise and engagement on the ground. So sometimes getting folks to pay attention to something new can be a challenge. I'd like to see it as an opportunity and like to ensure that folks aren't just seeing this as, as another thing. And I think that's particularly true for digital technologies. You know, they are so pervasive in our daily lives, both personal and professional. And I think you see folks acknowledging including people who are in the field of international development, acknowledging that pervasiveness and really wanting to understand, you know, what are the risks? You know, how do you maximize these tools to meet our development objectives? And I think I even saw that, you know, in the early days of the mobile revolution when we were in Niger, where we had Peace Corps volunteers who were doing uh, local radio shows. They were putting out, you know, different shows on, better ag practices or better, you know, opportunities for um, non-formal education learning, et cetera. And they were doing it in local languages and really were seen as celebrities around town. And of course, radio is an incredible medium for, for getting information out to folks. It's not the best form for engaging and, and getting reactions from folks. So, you know, I always thought that we can never really understand if a message was received, if it goes out on radio, or, or even if you could, if you did, I, I guess, like focus groups afterwards, was the message understood and was there behavior change really associated with it? And, you know, they were doing this around 2009, 2010, when we were having our, our you know, our dumb phones in our hands. And that's really where it hit me that, you know, we had this powerful new technology in front of us that actually could foster those two-way communications and really start to align our programs to the responses and needs of people on the ground where they could actually reach out to us and say, hey, my extension worker didn't show up today like they were supposed to. Can we go to the Ministry of Ag and check on where they are? You know, just a way of like really interacting that was never available before. And I think if you take that forward and say, okay, how do you embrace what's happening in today's digital age? across all of our sectors, that is a formidable challenge. One way to start to do that is to kind of flip the way that we design programs, right? We talk a lot about being data-driven as an organization or as an industry. I would say let's go one step further and talk about being data-first. And if you're going to design programs around what data you want to collect, how you want to use it, and how it's going to be in service of the communities for whom we serve, then you start and you recognize that the best way to do so is by embracing digital technologies. You kind of flip that script on its head and design programs a bit differently. And I think that's something that we're still in the process of trying to 
you know, move this very slow ship around to get the entire industry on board. I see that as an incredible opportunity. I'm sort of in our business, I would say, you know, just because something is hard to do doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. And so I, I certainly embrace that challenge. And I also embrace the challenge that we see in front of us in that when people do deploy digital tools and technologies, we still do so in a way that we do our development programming. That is, we do it sectorally, right? What tools can I bring to bear in global health? What tools can I bring to bear in food security and resilience or in education? The reality is digital technology is inherently distributive in nature. Why not tap into that and make sure that we're driving those efficiencies and investments across sectors and try to reduce that fragmentation in how we roll them out? And so those are some of the ones that we see in front of us. They're not unique to this moment in time and digital strategy implementation, but because we are so keenly focused on what it takes to implement this digital strategy, we're, we're much more attuned to those challenges and trying to mitigate them. Well, you certainly are not shying away from large challenges, that's for sure. And despite all these challenges, since launch, you guys have done a lot. What do you think your one or two most exciting accomplishments have been since launch? We are blessed with an amazing uh, group of folks. You know, they are technical experts. They are development practitioners. They like to lean in. They like to move fast, not break things, but they like to do so responsibly in a way that sets the communities up for whom we serve with a, a more positive opportunity for the future. And that's, I think, really what we've taken in our approach. But there are a couple successes that I'm really proud of from the team. One is we put a year-long, year-plus-long effort into developing and vetting and triangulating a digital ecosystem framework. And so if you're going to look at a digital ecosystem in any country, what are the main pieces of it? How do they interplay off of one another? How do you assess their health and strength? And, and really, how do you push it forward in order to respond to our digital strategy's overall objective of fostering open, inclusive, and secure digital ecosystems? And so this digital ecosystem framework guides the foundational piece of our strategy, which is a digital ecosystem country assessment that identifies the opportunities and risks in a country digital sector. And there are three overlapping pillars to it. One is the digital infrastructure and adoption, really ensuring that there is a secure and resilient digital infrastructure that is inclusive and accessible to everyone. The second uh, pillar is around digital society rights and governance, making sure that we are advancing really strong internet governance that is backed by a strong policy commitment at both a country and regional level. And the third pillar is around digital economy itself, making sure that we're promoting a well-functioning digital economy where service providers, be they public or private sector, can really provide uh, those services and build up the capacity of a digital workforce. And I, I love this framework. It's something that is not just for USAID itself, it's for our partners. And we've had a lot of interest from external partners saying, hey, we want to adopt this framework as well. We have been using it for these digital ecosystem country assessments. We've now completed seven of them, and we've got another 15 that are in various stages of 
design or planning. Ultimately, we'd like to get all of our USAID missions to conduct a DECA, Digital Ecosystem Country Assessment, and really use that to identify where they can make their investments, both in mitigating the growing risks that we see in today's digital age, but also maximizing the opportunities. Uh, We just put out a toolkit recently that will help missions and other partners do that so that we don't have to do each of the assessments. They tend to be very time-consuming and laborious, and we've been doing, of course, most of them virtually the past two years. But we also put together a, a digital ecosystem fund for our USAID missions to work alongside implementing partners when they have identified those opportunities and risks. And we've had two rounds so far where we've had 16 missions receive nearly $6 million for explicit digital programming activities that have ranged from improving employment opportunities for youth and youth with disabilities to closing digital skills gap. I think digital skills and digital literacy is still a big challenge for bringing people effectively online. Also for strengthening women's digital literacy specifically and for expanding sector-related services such as community health services that can be uh, delivered more successfully through the use of real-time data. And so those are some of the key takeaways so far. There's a lot more, but I'll stop there. What gives you hope for the future with regards to your work in these developing countries? Yeah, uh, I would say one of the biggest things that gives me hope, and, and which is also my motivation for for doing what we do, is seeing how end users, and you can define them any number of ways, you know, that singular individual in a community or communities themselves are really embracing digital tools and technologies to, to meet their socioeconomic livelihood needs, to in some cases, put themselves and their communities on the map to foster greater agency and voice for people who perhaps haven't historically had that and and digital technologies have really allowed them uh, to to do so. And that includes even influencing decision makers at governmental levels by using these tools to say, hey, this is what's going on in our community. These are our needs. This is what we've been doing well, et cetera. There's, a, there's a, some great examples of actually being able to leverage and, and change the mindset of decision makers to reallocate resources in response to those needs. And then ultimately, I think just drive greater empowerment of folks. If you think back to the analog world, and of course, face-to-face, even if it's through a screen, communication is still absolutely critical. I'm not here to say that everything is going to be solved by digital technologies. But if you go back a couple decades and recognize perhaps what had been missing for our ability to be responsive in real time to communities' concerns, I think digital technologies really fill that void. Certainly, there are ways that it's being filled not successfully. and, And, you know, I think we're much more attuned to the risks in today's digital age that might come from disinformation or misinformation or perhaps the rise of surveillance tactics. But I also am hopeful that we can double down on ensuring that digital is used for good, that is used uh, responsibly, that is used in an ethical manner that puts the onus on and the capacity on communities themselves to really foster their own future. And I'm really excited to be a small part of that very large and important process. 
Well, Chris, thanks for your time today and good luck in all the good work you do. Thanks again, Naveen. It's been great to chat with you. Much appreciated. Thanks to CSIS as well for, for having this podcast and having me on it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. Music.